Welcome, friends, to the second episode of the Faith Action Newscast. This week, we will commemorate one of the most solemn occasions on the American calendar. I'm speaking, of course, about 9-11. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please consider donating an honor to 9-11 victims to Tuesday's Children, a response and recovery organization focused on helping families affected by terrorism and traumatic loss. You can visit their website at www.tuesdayschildren.org. Once more, that's www.tuesdayschildren.org. Thank you. Thank you, friends, for listening in this week on the Faith Action Newscast, a weekly program dedicated to the religious dimensions of American life. And I'm your host, Zach. On this episode, we're going to be focusing on two questions related to 9-11 in news today. The first question is, how did 9-11 impact communities of faith? And the second question that we're going to examine is, what are communities of faith doing after 9-11? Now, at the face of it, it seems that these two questions can be answered one after the other. One seems to be a historical question, and the other one seems to be one that's more related to contemporary events. But if we examine the news cycle today, it's clear that we really haven't identified all of the ways in which 9-11 has impacted communities of faith, even if those effects were closer to 2001 than they are to 2017. So I would say our first question is just as contemporary as it is historical. We really aren't that far off from 9-11. We're only 16 years away. But I would also suggest that our second question isn't really all that contemporary. Because when we look at communities of faith and how they have responded and are responding to 9-11, we find that they are acting out of traditions. We find that they're acting out of their own history that may predate September 11th. 2001. So it's my goal then today to talk about these questions as complementary visions and not things that we should look at chronologically. So I'm not going to be answering them one after the other as much as I am going to consider them jointly together in discussing these news stories from the media today. All of this brings us to our first news story from the New York Post. According to the Post, a formal lease and purchase agreement have finally been signed with the Port Authority in New York for what will soon be known next year as the St. Nicholas National Shrine at the World Trade Center. So why should we begin with this news story in particular? And I would say that there are two reasons. First, this effort comes after 16 years of work in the Greek Orthodox community in New York one of the first buildings to be lost to 9-11 was the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church, which stood just outside of the World Trade Center. And in a very literal sense, the first community of faith affected by 9-11 was this parish community, which lost their church as the Twin Towers fell. But secondly, this clearly is a story about rebuilding and reconstruction and reconciliation that represents a lot of the efforts across the country from many different communities of faith as we remember 9-11, as we try to rebuild from it, as we try to reconcile ourselves to the collective trauma of the event. The St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church 
was hit very hard historically when the parish building fell with the Twin Towers. This church, which was established in 1916, had received three really ancient saints relics from Nicholas II, who was the last Tsar of Russia. Two of them came from the 4th century, and one of them came from the 13th century, and these were really the crown jewels of this church that to this day still have not been recovered from the rubble of ground zero. So this church really lost a, a huge part of its identity, uh, both to the Greek community of New York, but also to the Orthodox community. So for this parish to come together and say, look, we want to create a collective memorial where people of other faiths can worship with us and remember the kind of event that affected all of us really speaks to the power of communities of faith in a time where the general temptation is not to build these kinds of bonds, but to destroy them, to establish outgroups, to be paranoid, and look at strangers as if they automatically are your enemies. So this is why I've chosen this particular news story to open with, because a lot of the news that has been covered since 2001, all the way up till today, has focused on religious persecution and the broken bonds of faith. And to be fair, I'm going to cover these news stories too, because cases of religious discrimination are so important to cover in this country to reveal the kinds of divides and divisions we really do have as a country, because all of this affects the common good. But it's important to open with this story to show what's possible in faith communities after 9-11, and not just what the worst is that we are capable of because I think we all can use a goal to reach, even at this time when communities of faith, and even people who have no faith at all, are tempted to not welcome the stranger, but instead to persecute the stranger. But equally, if we are going to express the total nuance of what's happening in the news in relation to 9-11, we need to ask one more question. And that question is, who is the stranger? I think that there's an assumption in American political commentary that when we quote from scripture in a way that talks about welcoming the stranger, that we're talking about immigrants. And yes, immigrants are but one group that constitute the stranger. But really, it's a category of the mind and not just a category of other people. And I think that we're going to review some news stories today that show this reality, the power of our imagination and our fear to present our own brothers and sisters as the stranger. Because really, the kind of fear that 9-11 inspired is an estrangement. It estranges us from ourselves spiritually. It estranges us from our family politically, and it estranges us from everyone else who's literally a stranger to us in so many other ways. So we're going to go over some of those news stories which speak to this kind of estrangement. It should be no surprise to us that the group most estranged and discriminated against in the wake of September 11, 2001, is the Muslim community of our country. And just this month, 
The Haas Institute, which is based at the University of California, Berkeley, just released a report on the anti-Sharia law movement. And one of the most interesting sections of that report comes from Mark Potok, who is editor at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And he notes that there was a long period of decline in hate crimes against Muslims after 2001. However, between 2009 and 2010, there was a 50% rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes. What makes this so interesting is that between 2009 and 2010, there weren't any major terrorist attacks in the United States. And in fact, the smaller attacks that did occur in the country, most of those perpetrators of those attacks were white men and not Muslims from out of the country or what I would consider the traditional image of what a terrorist is in this country. So we have a huge problem with media coverage and especially the kind of fear that has been brewed after 9-11. So what does Mark Potok point to as some of the causes of the spike in anti-Muslim hate crimes? Well, First of all, he points to the ground zero mosque myth that was being spread at that time. So years ago, there was this story saying that a group of Muslims were planning to build a mosque next to ground zero as a way of showing triumph against the United States or against Americans by planting this kind of anti-shrine or anti-memorial Secondly, Mark Potok also points to the Sharia law conspiracy that was also being spread around the same time. So the key figure for that is a man named David Yerushalmi, who drafted a report which claimed Muslims were trying to take over the different state legislatures across the country in order to impose Sharia law. And very soon after, David Yerushalmi then drafted the model anti-Sharia law legislation that would then bud across the country in different state legislatures. So since then, between 2010 and 2016, there have been 194 anti-Sharia law bills introduced across the country. And today, President Trump, of course, is known for his travel ban against Muslim-majority countries. During the campaign, as we remember, Donald Trump had also campaigned on building a Muslim registry across the country. So this kind of fear and imagination that 9-11 sparked did take a few years to bud in other ways, and it required the consent and willingness of the American media to draw on prior fear and prior trauma and prior brokenness to build an anti-Muslim image. So where are we today? Just yesterday, which by the time of this recording would be September 15th, the National Catholic Reporter ran an article stating that there has now been an interfaith coalition that has met and signed a statement against President Donald Trump's travel ban. And this, of course, brings us to one of the ways in which communities of faith are resisting these structural sins that have been planted here since 9-11. 
So this interfaith coalition, which the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the National Council of Churches, the Sikh coalition, different faith community leaders, including the Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Washington, all of these different faith groups have signed a statement condemning the travel ban on Muslim-majority countries, and they're not afraid to give resources to making sure that in a hearing in October, which would be October 2017, that this travel ban incited by fear and false information is finally defeated. Although I agree with Potok over these two major causes between 2009 and 2010 giving rise to a surge in anti-Muslim discrimination and hate crimes, we should also look to at least one long-term factor which allows this kind of misinformation to spread in the first place, and it all goes back to religious literacy. There is such ignorance over what constitutes a Muslim, and it's not just leading to discrimination and violence against Muslims but to people of other faiths as well. In this country, we have a very racialized view of Muslims, that Muslims look a particular way, they dress a particular way, they have beards and wear turbans or burqas and have dark-colored skin. That's what I mean when I say we have a racialized view of Muslims. Now, number one, not all Muslims look like that. And number two, there are people who may fit that image, but nevertheless aren't Muslim. And it's for this reason that after 9-11, we also see a rise in hate crimes against Sikhs, because they fit this racialized image of Muslims. The local Bakersfield, California news reported that the Sikhs of Bakersfield, California and beyond have formed a motorcycle group to write out across the state and perhaps one day the country to educate Americans on who the Sikhs are, why they wear their turban in reverence to God, and precisely what their religion teaches. Now, this effort is clearly important, especially after Balbir Singh, a Sikh gas station owner in Mesa, Arizona, was killed just four days after 9-11. And in 2012, in Wisconsin, there were six Sikhs who were gunned down. So the Sikhs are no strangers to anti-Muslim ignorance and bigotry. In fact, they too are victims of this. So the Sikh writers, meeting at the Bakersfield Harley-Davidson for their 11th annual 9-11 memorial run, have already begun the work to show people that Sikhs are plenty capable of being fine Americans, just as Muslims are, and that these two groups form two completely different religions. And Gurinder Singh Basra, the president of the Sikh Writers of America, said just this past Monday, if we don't reach out to people, we can't educate them. Part of the problem is there's no education in school to teach people about world religions. This is fundamentally a problem of religious literacy. But the story of the Sikh writers in Bakersfield, California, isn't the only news report that speaks to the effects of this racialized anti-Muslim image on non-Muslim groups. Just yesterday in Forest Hills in New York, two Orthodox Jewish women were assaulted 
at a Queen's subway station by a man because he thought that they were Muslims. He shouted at them, quote, go back to your fucking country, you dirty Muslims. Police have charged 40-year-old Demetrios Zias with assault as a hate crime. And the police reported that as they were handcuffing the suspect, he asked them if they were arresting him because he was, quote, rich and white. Now, this story is interesting for a variety of reasons. It brings up issues of race, of gender, of class, and, of course, the subject of our podcast of religion. Here we have a case where two members of a religion often portrayed as in complete opposition to Islam are themselves the victims of an anti-Muslim image. But so long as the racialized anti-Muslim image persists, the more these kinds of attacks are going to happen. Attacks not just against Muslims, but anyone who just, quote, looks too Muslim. But what's most worth asking is, when does this image end? Since 2001, it has grown, it has mutated, it has transformed and diversified. It's gone in so many different directions. And the more that it persists, the less that we address it, the more even this assaulter in New York would also be mistaken for fitting this anti-Muslim image. Even those who once considered themselves safe from this kind of violence will also fall upon this sword. This is not the American dream that 9-11 endangered. This is not the image of freedom that we wanted to preserve in the wake of that disaster. This is a structural sin that has curdled out of our memory. And just as the Sikh writers of America expressed, the only way that we can change this image and ultimately defeat it within ourselves is to pursue a religious education, to educate ourselves on the different members of different faith communities. Because until we can touch the shoulder of strangers, we will never know who our real neighbors are. Are. So now I want to turn to two other news stories in this week's cycle. The first comes from the Tennessean. The Tennessean reports that Dixon Middle School teacher Sarah King met with the parents of her students at a family night at the middle school. And at this family night, Miss King presented her vision for the way that she's going to teach her seventh graders about the history of the Crusades which she says she's going to teach twice from two different perspectives. Miss King wanted to alleviate the fears that parents may have had over the teaching of Islam in her classroom. And according to the article in the Tennessean, Miss King requested Freed Hardman University history professor Corey Markham to talk about the importance of teaching religious literacy to these grade schoolers. And Miss King adds, I have always told my students religion in history is comparable to learning how geography affects history. And could you imagine how little we would know about our own political moment, our own situation, if we didn't know a tittle about geography? It's the same way with learning about faith, with learning about religion. Religion deserves to be a topic in the classroom. How else? 
do we expect to raise a new generation, which, by the way, does not recall 9-11, to become model citizens, to restore the kind of democracy that 9-11 put in danger? They can only accomplish this if we give them an image of what this country could be, of what the past accurately has been. We can't leave this up to imagination. We can't leave this up to the kinds of suspicion that we may have because of our own fears, our own trauma, our own experience with 9-11. Now is the time to talk to children, to talk to middle schoolers like Miss King's class about what Islam is. We know that we can speak to people of faith about what they do believe, what their tenets are. And I would wager that we would find more strangers among our neighbors than we would find strangers among strangers. This is the paradox of living in a country that grants equal rights to all in law, even if in practice we are all so different. But until such a time as that, when we can look at strangers and begin to see them as the neighbors they really are, and not through these images that the media gives us, we're only going to have gaps in ourselves and between ourselves and others where there should really be bridges, where there should be unity. Social media, by the way, and this brings us to the next story in this vein, has absolutely no inherent interest in repairing these divisions. According to ProPublica, quote, the world's largest social network, meaning Facebook, enabled advertisers to direct their pitches to the news feeds of almost 2,300 people who expressed interest in the topics of, quote again, Jew hater, how to burn Jews, or history of why Jews ruin the world. Facebook has no inherent interest in curbing anti-Semitism any more than our news cycle has any interest in erasing scandal over Muslims in this country, over Sikhs in this country, or Orthodox Jews in this country. Facebook cares about what every other private business cares about, and that's money. But this rampant self-interest in allowing advertisers to take advantage of our prejudices so they can sell us their product in no way resolves the problems after 9-11. And mind you, some of the very first conspiracy theories about September 11th were related to these anti-Semitic Jewish conspiracies that said Jews caused 9-11 or Israel caused 9-11. These anti-Semitic tales stand right alongside the anti-Muslim ones. By allowing these advertisers to use Facebook data in this way is against any possible path of healing the wounds of 9-11. And of course, we can't just point to the wounds that are on the home front, but also those that affect the American soldiers who are in the Middle East. And this also is where I want to point to religious illiteracy, this time on the behalf of one American general. The Washington Post reports that a senior U.S. commander in Afghanistan apologized Wednesday 
for distributing propaganda leaflets that superimposed a key Islamic text on the image of a dog. And that's a quote from the Washington Post. So what's the issue? Well, as the Washington Post says, in Afghan society, there is a cultural and religious sensitivity toward the issue of dogs because, as it says, these animals are generally considered unclean, diseased and dangerous, and so on. So ultimately, when these leaflets were distributed among the Afghan people, this was clearly culturally and religiously tone-deaf on behalf of the American military. And on Wednesday, the Taliban was able to use these leaflets to show, quote, the utter animosity that the United States has toward Islam. So, not just here, but also abroad, the religious illiteracy of this country, especially toward Islam, doesn't just put American lives in danger or immigrant lives in danger. It also puts the lives of people abroad in danger, even American soldiers. The police chief of the Afghan city of Parwan, Mohammed Zaman Mamozai, said, Why don't they understand or know our culture, our religion, and history? We lost several million, lost our country and government, just because of our religion. And this wouldn't be the first time that the American military has shown itself tone-deaf to the people with whom it wants to establish alliances and partnerships. Because in 2012, in that same city of Parwan, United States soldiers burned Korans at the Bagram military base. And as a result, there were days of anti-U.S. demonstrations because of this. There were violent demonstrations, and ultimately they started spreading to other parts of the country. Religious illiteracy has a huge impact on the safety of the American public. And it's clear that our religious illiteracy doesn't just exacerbate the problems that come from that specific day of September 11th, 2001, but even the resulting events from it. And here I mean, of course, our double invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. So this really is a legacy of farce. Farce defines the first two decades of our religious sphere in this country. Farce in terms of not only religious illiteracy, but religious violence, religious discrimination. And so in a time where we're told that religion is in such decline that we shouldn't expect it to be a big issue in the future, it's nevertheless one of the most important elements of American foreign policy, of American constitutional law. It is one of the core news items of every major newspaper in this country. And all of this, in spite of the same message that tells us, no, 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 this really isn't about religion. This struggle is about economics, or it's about a number of secular issues. But the problem with that is that there is nothing outside the grasp of faith, of religion, of traditions. And I think that this Washington Post story shows how important a religious disposition, or at least a religious sensitivity, is 
in healing our 9-11 divide. So with all this said, I just want to cover one more news item before we end this week's episode. And the story is that Slate Magazine ran a cover story on Father Michael Judge, who was a Franciscan brother and also the chaplain for the New York City Fire Department during 9-11. He was the first confirmed death of 9-11 and the Slate cover story summarizes the attempt today to make Father Michael Judge a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. But there's more to this story. If Father Michael Judge's case is successful, he will be the first confirmed gay man sainted in the Roman Catholic Church. The stakes of this canonization are so high, especially given the success of Father James Martin's recent book on building relations between the LGBT community and the Roman Catholic community. A canonization like that of Father Michael Judge would be one of the largest bridges to be built in this case. And it's worth reviewing the kind of life that Father Judge lived during the AIDS crisis, he administered the last rites and the Eucharist to gay AIDS patients when people were too afraid to touch them as if they were lepers. And when the Archdiocese of New York banned a Manhattan church from offering mass to Dignity USA, which we talked about in our prior episode, Father Judge accommodated them when the Archdiocese wouldn't. It's also worth mentioning that the spiritual director of Father Judge was Father John J. McNeil, who is one of the most famous gay rights activists slash Jesuit priests in the country. So there is a very long tradition that Father Judge represents in terms of LGBT religious rights, and I mean that in the sense of the R-I-G-H-T right and the R-I-T-E Right. So the canonization case represents more than just the saintliness of this man, but also it would be a victory for LGBT Roman Catholics who have been waiting for this kind of role model. On the day of the 9-11 attacks, Father Judge's final moments were spent in the World Trade Center administering the last rites to other victims of the attack. And whether Father Judge is canonized or not, I sense that the non-Roman Catholic churches will find a hero in Father Judge, even if his own home church, the Roman Catholic Church, will not canonize him. At this time, it's difficult to estimate where this canonization case will end up, especially given the push for higher tolerance from Father James Martin, from Cardinal Reinhard Marx, from Pope Francis and many other Roman Catholic leaders and members of the hierarchy. But whatever that end result is, it's not just a testament to the Roman Catholic legacy toward gay people, toward American people, but in the final instance, toward the event that was 9-11. And for this reason alone, the life 
and the death of Father Judge is worth remembering, not just by communities of faith, not just his own, but by all Americans. Because this is the kind of figure who really was a helper in the Fred Rogers sense of that phrase. In a time of great disaster, Father Judge brought healing and courage and boldness to this country. And it's his story and others like his that are going to help us bridge the divide and give us a role model in these most uncertain and farcical times. So perhaps then the same disaster that consumed the relics of three saints may have produced the remains of one more. My name is Zach, and thank you so much for joining me this week for this episode of the Faith Action Newscast. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.